This week on The Futurists, Anders Sormann Nielsen. We haven't really had a clear sort of villain up until recent times, but I do think you're calling it out there, and it's the fossil fuel industry. This week, we're going to get into the uh, avant-garde side of futurism with uh, my friend Anders uh, from Down Under. But before we jump into that, Rob, what have you got in the news? Well, you know, Brett, lately you can't open a newspaper or go to a website without seeing some news about generative AI. And I know the story is starting to get a little bit old. We've covered it a few times, but they keep finding new ways to use these generative uh, pre-trained trans. Transformers. And here's one that I read about, and I thought you would dig it the most, Brett. So here we go. It's uh, a robot attorney. And as it turns out, uh, the legal language and the proceedings in court are actually quite a good use case uh, yeah. for an AI. And so they have now developed a new kind of uh, a GPT model or large, large language learning model. Um, and it's called GPT-J. Uh, and the J stands for justice or jurisprudence, I suppose. Um, but the point is that it is a robot, uh, basically robot cheat sheet. So if you're in a courtroom for a standard procedure like traffic case, uh, you can wear a Bluetooth headset and this thing will whisper in your ear instructions. And if you repeat what it says, uh, you might be able to talk your way out of the court case. And uh, the the, uh, the company that made it I is like called it. Do Not Pay. And so they, uh, they, they offer ways for people to beat traffic tickets, and this is their new gimmick. Um, and uh, so this, this is an AI that advises uh, defendants. It's not entirely clear that this is legal because in most U.S. states, uh, you're required to be a licensed attorney to practice law. And so this would be kind of a legal robot, although it is a kind of a, a neat concept and um, it's going to be tested. But you're so allowed I, to represent yourself as well. Yeah, so. that's the idea. And, so, and you're also allowed in certain case, courts uh, you're allowed to wear an earpiece. That's not true in every court. Uh, and so they had to find a jurisdiction where those two things are possible. And they claim they've found two. So they're going to go with a test case in about a month. So we shall keep you posted on the outcome there yeah, of that trial. Uh, what's interesting is do not pay. The CEO is not revealing which jurisdiction they're going to have the case in because he doesn't want to tip the judge off that they're having this robot uh-huh. attorney assist them. So uh-huh. there's a little bit of suspense around this story. But I just thought uh-huh. you get a kick out of it. You can uh, now have an AI help you beat a speeding ticket. No, I did see uh, some other news as well, which uh, we, we should get into, but um, that uh, China has developed a drone that works off laser technology. Mm-hmm. So the drone can stay aloft essentially forever based on on laser tech. So um, now I don't know if this is sort of microwave energy charging the battery or uh, how it works, but... Um, you know, when we start talking about automated warfare and so forth as well, yeah, you know, particularly now that we see like the US and Europe sending tanks to Ukraine and so forth, you know, there is going to be a lot of experimentation in the autonomous warfare arena as well. So yeah, that's worrying, worrying trend in that respect. But um, well, let's let's jump into something a bit more positive. Yes. So, so on that happy note, let's turn to our guests. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. At what, at what Anders, stage welcome. do we? Uh, I, I was going to say, at what stage do we start pushing the panic buttons here of weaponized AI and going from you know harmless speeding tickets to 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 drones being weaponized in yeah. uh, you know places? Yeah. Like well, th- this is the thing. We're going to try and automate everything because that's what we yeah. do, right? We throw yeah. tech at everything, and um, in many cases, that's well, you know, I mean, this is going to change the nature of work, uh, obviously, you know, um, but. 
uh, we, we, the problem is we spend far too much time debating whether AI is going to change things instead of actually starting to think about how we transition society, you know, in that state, you know, with, with these changes. I mean, that's my thought. But Anders Nielsen, uh, Solman Nielsen, welcome to The Futurists. Hi, Anders. Yeah, great to be uh, on the show. Nice to see Robert nice and to, good to connect again. Brett. Yes. Like a, a little a little anecdote uh, just on that chat GPT piece. Um, I mean, I don't know if this was ironic or uh, just the way things are these days, but we uh, we had a last-minute inquiry from, from a from a large uh, credit card company doing some work with a, a major bank in Asia Pac. And they started asking, you know, where, where do you get your research from? Like when you talk about the top 10 top 10 uh, clean tech trends, for example, or whatever else it happens to be. And they they were quite sort of into and investigating and litigating uh, our ability with our research team to do some really cutting edge research. And uh, I shared with them that, you know, in preparation for the call, one of the things based upon their written brief that I'd done was to put the brief into chat GPT. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if I felt like I was cheating on the exam or not, but I think actually we're quite um, impressed that not only do we use, you know, primary and secondary sources and we have a, you know, research team around us, but, you know, we're also assisting the human intelligence with artificial intelligence. And some of the best research ahead of that call were in fact from chat GPT because uh, yeah. that particular client wanted to know about, you know, what are the top five use cases in in, in social and, and uh, you know, and in, in the metaverse where financial services firms are doing some really interesting thought leadership and educational pieces. And, you know, better than my human researchers, chat GPT uh, pointed us in the right direction uh, to help influence that little uh, well, you sales know, call. When- Maybe we should skip the interview with you and just go straight to chat GPT and we'll ask the questions and we can just read them into the mic. No, I I think, um, you know, I mean, already we're seeing things like, you know, work on proteins and compounds and uh, things like this where chat GPT is allowing us to figure out certain scientific compounds that we haven't created before. That could be yeah, really the danger though is that this this version is often incorrect, right? And and it's right. very convincing. Uh someone today said it was basically yeah. automated mansplaining because it speaks with great authority, <laughs> even though it doesn't know what it's talking about, to someone whom it has no understanding of whether they are an expert in the subject or not, and is blissfully ignorant of that. I thought that was a nice way to put it. GPT four is coming though imminently, and that it's being trained on a much larger data set. And so it probably will be formidable. In many Although of these Sam Altman also. sort of tried to downplay GPT-4 a couple of weeks ago. I don't know whether you saw that, but, um, you know, I do think, uh, you know, obviously it is going to be a larger data set. It is going to be more comprehensive. Already, ChatGPT has got people talking. It It's just a matter of time, right? Whether it's GPT-4 or 4.5 or 5. Or Google some, Lambda, right? Which they haven't right, released exactly. yet, but that apparently is quite compelling as well. So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I think the AI wars are just heating up. I think Sam Altman's comment on Twitter was something to the effect of uh, that chat GPT is uh, extremely convincing at pretending that it knows something. Uh, Maybe to your point there, Robert, uh, it's a bunch of mansplaining. Yeah. We already have that. That's called a politician as well. (laughs) Um, So, Anders, uh, you're um, originally Swedish, but you're based in Australia. You've, uh, you know, over the last few years, you've published a number of books, um, you know, in the space. 
you know, I, I think um, one of the things that that is interesting is you, you've sort of embraced the futurist uh, moniker. Um, that's a more recent thing in your career to some extent. Um, you know, if we go back to some of your earlier books, um, you know, you were trying to marry the, 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 the with the, your digilog stuff, you were trying to marry, um, you know, the traditional world and, and the emerging world. But in, in more recent years, you've, you know, become much more immersed in, um, you know, the futurist uh, play. So um, tell me about that transition. And, and maybe it, it doesn't, maybe it's, you know, that transition is, is not accurately portrayed by me. But, um, you know, when was it that you decided that you were going to be a futurist? Wow. Uh, probably, probably when I grew up uh, watching a lot of uh, Star Wars back in the early 80s in, in, in Sweden. I've always had a fascination with, you know, with sci-fi and, you know, the adventure genre and all the rest. And then I understood later on through my global executive MBA that, you know, future strategy, uh, strategy development and transformation is really just like telling a science fiction story, yeah. uh, a story that, you know, your whole organization needs to believe in, they need to suspend disbelief and go along to this point in the future that, you know, CEOs talk about, this is, you know, what we want our bank to look like, or, uh, you know, what we want the UN to look like in 2030. Um, so that's a little bit of, of background. I guess i still have a bit of a soft spot. I always talk, talk about the fact that I like to marry, you know, tradition with technology and the analog with the digital and, you know, the physical with the virtual. Um, and I think the fact is that when I look at the thing that really slows us down, it's, um, humans. Um, I mean, no doubt chat GPT yeah. and artificial intelligence is going to keep exploding in its sophistication. And, you know, robots and machines have been learning while we've been sleeping at the wheel. Um, and um, the only thing that can really kind of slow down this adoption is is, is humans becoming, you know, enmeshed in our own laggardness. So there is a real sort of human element to all of this. And I guess um, even though I'm very much focused on sustainable futures, um, this marriage of, you know, the virtual and, and the physical, the analog and the digital still plays part in my, I guess, narrative and outlook. Um, so, mm. um, and it's, and it's something it's, I mean, it's, it's funny, Brett, right? Because like, yeah. Um, we talk about near horizon futures and far horizon futures and, you know, different horizons, you know, whether those be the next two to three years or the next, you know, 30 to 40 or 50 years. Um, I've sort of found that working with clients that um, sometimes when I start talking about 2050 or 2045, people sort of go, oh, yeah, here we go. The singularity again. Yeah. You know, like, And they glance over a little bit because they're like, you know, my computer doesn't even talk to my printer. So, you know, when you talk about the singularity, that I feel a little bit too far. But, you know, I, I think part of the challenge here, and and Robert, feel free to chime in, but um, Thanks. you know, <laughs> Part of the challenge is, um, you know, we, we have very short termism uh, um, as a result of capitalism. I, you know, I think that's created a lot of short termism. You know, uh, humanity didn't always, we weren't always very short term yeah. like this. Investors you know? demand results and they want them now and they don't tolerate right. long term results. The other factor here is that, you know, these systems we we're joking about a moment ago. Uh, these learning systems, you know, certainly they're filled with defects and there's ways for them to go wrong. There's no question about it. But when the system learns something correctly, it knows it forever. 
And that's just not true for human beings. We tend to be forgetful. We're terrible eyewitnesses, for example. And it also takes a long time to train a human uh, in how to be an adult, right? It takes 18 years or more before we're fully formed as functioning adults. So we're at a structural disadvantage to these machines because they're gonna keep getting smarter and they retain all that memory and all that learning. Uh, you know, We're certainly not at that point at this stage. Uh, so it's easy for us to poke holes in them. But I think uh, that's one piece that's missing or people, to, don't, they lose sight of uh, that the, the knowledge is retained. And so these systems are gonna continue to get smarter and smarter and, and we're not necessarily getting that much smarter. Yeah. You'd well, think we would be, right? You'd think we'd be working on governance models. No, but there, there was a period of time when IQ was progressively going up the last, uh, you know, um, sort of 80 years. But that yeah, has been we got TikTok and it right? stopped. It came to a screeching yeah. halt. <laughs> it was TikTok. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so, Anders, we had a recently had a guest on the show, uh, David Matten, who is the author of uh, uh, New World, Same Humans. And he had a really interesting perspective that I think is uh, consistent with yours, or maybe it's uh, similar enough that you can comment on it. Uh, he, I asked him about his technique for forecasting. And I said, how, do you, how is it that you can analyze all these trends across so many different sectors and you come up with such interesting insight? He said, it's very simple. I have one technique and you can do it. Anyone can do it. He said he tries to understand what fundamental human need the new technology or the new trend is addressing. And if it's an adequate substitute for something we already have, then he thinks that's going to be a durable trend. And then he writes, see, he's willing to you know, basically stick his neck out uh, and write his opinion about that. And that's what his newsletter consists of. He'll identify one trend, gives you analysis of it, and then he'll give you his view of it. It sounds to me that you're using a similar humanistic uh, lens when you consider these trends. You're looking at the human being caught between you know, our physicality, uh, our analog hearts, if you will, and then the digital world that's kind of reprogramming our minds. Is that, is that accurate? Is that kind of the, the lens that you use to look at digital change? Yeah, I mean, we've got a, got a few models, few, few, few approaches, a few ways of thinking systematically about the future. But um, just a comment on that, I think that, um, you know, David's view is, is one that's sort of picked up by, you know, likes of Jeff Bezos. He says, you know, anything that doesn't change in the world or is going to, you know, continue to be a fundamental human need for a long period of time, you know, that's something you can build a business model around. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in our world of futurism, oftentimes we get asked to comment on these like little blips sometimes they're you know durable future signal sometimes they're mega trends and sometimes they're just you know flash in the pan moments right um now we you know we could have arguments about you know whether crypto is here to stay you know the usefulness of of bitcoin and the blockchain and other things you know some of these things or you know non-fungible tokens right some of those things like a really great clickbait and then you know there's always an argument are they going to solve a fundamental human need in the long term so i think that that is a really nice lens to look at and, and we certainly share some of those perspectives but i guess you know some of the thought experiments and models that we we use um are things that are at you know at everyone's disposal be it you know scenario planning you know, mm -hmm. categorizing our thoughts and our observations and, you know, pretty simple tools like, you know, state or sociocultural, technological, economic, environmental, and political trend analysis um, lenses, for example, right, yeah. and just kind of go, hey, hey, you know, is this a sociocultural trend? Is it an economic trend? Is it an environmental trend? So we use that to inform our scenario planning. And I guess then you can, you know, draw a bow or string a bow and look, you know, to 2030 or 2035 and, of course, with all of that goes a little bit of external scanning. So when we see what we think are long-term projections or trends, mega trends like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are firmly focused on 2030, I think that provides a really useful lens to kind of go, you know, 
Uh, here's a you know a creativity catalyst of doing more uh, with less, uh, and you know catalyzing creativity and entrepreneurial business models within planetary constraints. So yeah, well that's a goal, often, right? Yeah. That's a little different from a scenario, right? That's a goal. The the, the SDGs. Um, one of the things that comes up frequently on this show when we talk about scenario planning is that. Uh, it's relatively easy to predict out about 18 months. Most people can do that, uh, at least for their field of expertise, with a fair degree of confidence. You can't be perfectly right, but with a fair degree of confidence, you can predict what's going to happen. Sometimes that's difficult, but generally speaking, people can see ahead a year or so. And three years out, it's not that difficult to work with a team uh, at a company, with the Strat team, uh, to figure out what they're planning to do for the next three years. After that, it starts to get murky really fast. And anything five years out, you're you're out of the realm of like analytics and you're in the realm of storytelling i think and and story and scenario planning uh done right you you do you posit like a positive scenario and then a negative scenario and then a couple of other alternatives around that sometimes using criteria that you described um and it keeps coming up again and again it's the storytelling that's important because that's how humans process that's how we create meaning in our experience it's also what motivates us if you think about the great heroic myths you know and the national myths and so forth that inspire us uh, so storytelling turns out to be a really powerful thing for future casting and i find that just sort of interesting because um i didn't think when we started this program that we were going to be talking about storytelling as much as it often comes up but it seems to so for our future uh, for the future that you're thinking about, the sustainable future, it seems to me that there are scary scenarios and there are exciting scenarios, oh, encouraging scenarios. True. Can you share with us a little bit uh, of the positive and negative stories that we might be thinking about when we think about the future and sustainability? So I think there's a wonderful marriage made in heaven, in a sense, um, between digital transformation uh, and technology and sustainable innovation. And um, pundits and, and, and researchers, uh, universities have been publishing some of this information for a while. But if you look at American productivity, for example, going back 100 years, we're now starting to decouple our productivity from the usage of natural resources and minerals in, in some areas. So, you mm -hmm. know, you'll see U.S. productivity, you know, you know, goes up and down a little bit. But, you know, generally the trend is on the up. But the use of things like aluminum or, or nickel and, and copper is actually going down. Hmm. And across the world now, as you see, um, you know, economies in the developing world. So I think that, you know, the general trend is towards more productivity while treading more lightly on, on the planet. And, you know, we, we see that with US productivity, you know, generally trending upwards while the usage of nickel and copper, aluminum is going downwards. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of where this is a really exciting story, but around the developing world, you're also seeing, you know, just like Brett would point out that, you know, people in Kenya used M-Pesa instead of going to physical credit cards and all the wastage mm -hmm. in, 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 you know, producing plastic cards uh, as a form of mobile payments. So through like M-Copa, for example, these developing countries are now skipping entire generations of building a massive national electricity grid and instead building smaller solar grids where, again, people can pay for electricity where there was no power before to power um, you know, the lamps and houses that would actually provide people the ability to do homework at night. As a result, they don't have to burn kerosene anymore. So 
again, this leapfrogging across entire generations of, you know, physical infrastructure is something that's, again, going to help us achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And if we think about something as simple as the humble iPhone and the um, hundreds of devices that it's replaced in the one device, um, you know, whether it be the VCR, be the camcorder, the Sony Walkman, the, the fax yeah. machine, et cetera, et cetera, they would have all consumed virgin planetary resources back in the yeah, 90s yeah. and, yeah, and yeah. 2000. You're, you're speaking my language, my friend. I wrote a book about that subject called Vaporize. So, yes, Vaporized. I agree with you. There but, you go. Let me, let me take an opposite point of view just for the sake of interesting conversation. I've been reading Vlakov Smil. You know him. He's the Canadian uh, energy researcher and uh, and a scientist who's who who frankly would would probably have a pretty dim view of the conversation we're having right now. But he, because I think what he would say is, sure, the United States economy has deindustrialized to some extent. So of course we're using fewer of those minerals. It doesn't mean that we're not consuming them. We are. We're just importing them from places like China, where they do the manufacturing. You could say something similar broadly uh, about Australia. Australia isn't manufacturing cars anymore. It doesn't mean Australia is not consuming cars. And, you know, Australia has a giant minerals uh, industry, but they ship the minerals to China where they manufacture the products that the Australians then consume. So I think on a planetary scale, uh, those mineral resources are still being consumed. Uh, fossil fuels are still being consumed and they will be for a very long time. I'm not trying to be a pessimist, uh, but I think it's useful to have that grounded perspective, right? To respond to. Well, overall, how do we change those incentives? Now, that's really the question is how do we change the the incentives for the system to be more, you know, more geared towards sustainability than it is profitability? Because yeah, it that's a uh, challenge, though, right? Because uh, Vlakov Smil would say there's still a billion and a half people on the planet who don't have basic things like access to an apartment or regular toilet. food that they can expect yeah. uh, or access to transportation and clean water. I mean, really fundamental. And he's like. Those folks are going to want an apartment with air conditioning, just like you have and just like yeah. I've got. And who's to say they shouldn't have those things? So, in fact, he projects that the consumption will increase. Now, Anders, I just threw a bunch at you. Feel free mm. to respond to any of that and pick it apart. Yeah, I'll just say no, no. <laughs> okay, um, I, uh, you know, as 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 futurist, and even I guess as a climate optimist, I, I certainly um, love to uh, process and sit and reflect on. Uh, on what is oftentimes a very bad news story, right? Um, I think I just want to give you the, the sort of climate upside that I think there's a real there's a real opportunity when we shift away from a linear economy of take, make, and waste towards a circular economy of repurposing and recycling, upcycling. Uh, and I think you know one of the benefactors here is is Apple. Um, Apple, when we you know when we take back the old version of the iPhone, again something that replaces yeah. so many physical devices. Uh, that would have all, you know, consumed planetary resources, and we bring back the cobalt, the lithium, uh, in that iPhone, uh, as well as the gold, making Apple one of the largest gold miners in 2018. You know that that is something where Apple saves. You know, we're engaging in urban mining. Um, and again, they're showcasing that they can have their productivity cake and eat it at the same time, and treading more lightly on the planet. I think that I think that is a heartening story. Of course, um, I don't want. I to think be... Apple can see where it's going, right? Yeah. You know, if you look at their twenty thirty plan, they see where it's going. They claim and... to be carbon neutral, right? So at least they're aiming in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and broadly, think, you see like, this. I'm, with... I'm not. Yeah, I'm not going to be Pollyannish about it because it's right. uh, you know, but I, I think it is. This, these are 
future signals when when large organizations are shifting business models, be it Apple or, you know, our clients at Philips, for example, that changing their business models around, you know, healthcare tech, for example, so that, you know, it's healthcare tech as a service, mm-hmm. as opposed to just selling something, they're taking, you know, product stewardship of uh, those devices. And similarly to that leapfrogging comment before, you know, they don't sell the monitors anymore into hospitals, but their ultrasounds, for example, now will tap into the iOS or the Android system of nurses and doctors. And as a result, you know, existing technologies get utilized. Yeah. Consumer right. technologies get 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 utilized to make sense of the ultrasound. Yeah. Um so I think you know th- those things are heartening, and then you see you know the likes of Unilever. We had um, Nikki Sparshot, who's the CEO of Unilever for Australia and New Zealand, uh, on our podcast, The Second Renaissance, and I interviewed her in her quest and now mission accomplished of turning Unilever into a B Corp. So Unilever Australia and New Zealand is now certified as a B Corp. Now just one of their brands, T Two, which is a tea brand. Uh, that was sort of their test case when they converted that into a B Corp over about 18 months or two years. They had to either work with, get rid of, or upskill 400 different suppliers around the world. So that's just one oh. brand in the Unilever yeah. family. Now, we all know Unilever has a lot more brands than just T2. So you can Im- imagine yeah, that's what a this big engineering did. project, re-engineering yeah. the supply chain. Anders, uh, we should probably continue this conversation after the break. We'll continue talking about transforming physical products into digital services. That's a rich vein to mine. But before we do that, we like to torture our guests on this show with a series (laughs) of short questions. And the person who's going to administer the punishment to you is your friend, Brett. So, Brett, it's up to you to do the rapid fire round, the lightning round. So, Anders, what was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to? It would have been um, Star Wars back in, I think, 86. Oh, right. Okay. Um, What technology do you think has most changed humanity? For better and for worse, social media. Interesting. Um, you, you, you obviously are well-read, but, um, can you name a futurist or an entrepreneur that has personally influenced you and, and why? I would say someone like Alvin Toffler. Um, certainly his, his future shock is, uh, you know, a great, uh, tome in the industry, but also, uh, I was recently asked to contribute to his, um, Aftershock, you know, 50 yeah. year celebration of Aftershock. So, um, Alvin Toffler. Awesome. Uh, you know, in terms of predictions or forecasts, is there an entrepreneur um, or a futurist or a sci-fi that's made a particularly good prediction, you think? Um, I, an entrepreneur that I, you know, that I look up to and I've had the you know privilege to meet um, on occasion is uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian. Um, you know, they they employ a, a workplace futurist, Dom Price, at Atlassian, um, uh, similar to Google's Ray Kurzweil for many years. Um, I think that's really heartening, but also, you know, some of his investments in, in climate tech and clean tech, um, really, really heartening as to how he's looking to make a real, real impact and a real sort of intergenerational change, um, so I'd say. So for those listeners who are listening from outside of Australia, Mike Cannon Brooks is the sort of Elon Musk of Canada. He's he's created the one big successful software company that's exported technology all over the world. And it is a genuinely solid success case. Let's go to break. 
Yeah. Um, you're listening to The Futurist with myself and uh, Rob Tersek uh, as uh, hosts. We'll be back with our guest and as Sulman Nelson after this quick word from our sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tersik and my co-host, Brett King. This week, we are interviewing Anders Sorman Nilsson from Sydney, Australia, by way of Sweden. Great to have you on the show. Yeah. You know, we were talking literally a from the about, future. Yeah, a, a, well, a, a citizen of the world, right? And, and literally, you are coming to me from the future because I'm here in California and you're already into tomorrow <laughs> there in Australia. I've always found that kind of perplexing. Like, good morning. Um, before the break, we were talking about an inspiration to all of us, Alvin Toffler. And Brett, I found this book in a used bookstore and I thought I'd show it to you. It's called The Futurists. And ah, it's edited by awesome. Alvin Toffler. Yes. So uh, that is a book that I will try to find a copy for you. Uh, it's awesome. a compendium of future forecasts that were written in the 70s and when he was at the height of his powers. Um, but what we were talking about just a moment ago during the break, which I think is a good topic, is what's difficult about this job of forecasting and thinking about the future. Uh, everyone tries to keep it really positive. I understand that energy. And yet we're surrounded by negativity, all these bad news stories that seem to be uh, constant and and ter- interminable. <laughs> Here in the U.S., we seem to have this like political war that won't stop, and it's been going on for ten years, and it's exhausting. A culture war; it's turning into so a useless, kind of a, right? a battle it's between so the counterproductive. Heartland. Yeah, we waste what a ton of resources distracting people. Well, and that's true with this war in Ukraine, right? It seems so utterly pointless, and so much is being wasted there right now. Um, now, maybe there's a positive side to it, though, because uh, what's going to happen on the other side of this is that Europe will be less dependent on natural gas. And that might actually propel, uh, you know, a, a kind of reawaken an interest in renewables in Europe. We'll, we'll see. That may be too optimistic as well, but let's see what happens. Anders, what's your perspective on that? As you look at this world and your focus on sustainability, do you view these things as difficult problems? And do you see some difficult problems ahead? Well, I think, I mean, so a few comments there. One is, um, you know, humans have had a tendency when there is a you know a short-term crisis to you know yes innovate but sometimes also go the other route of anti-innovation um you know i remember 20 years ago when my parents bought their current home in sweden um there was an option for them to get uh geothermal heating to the house and and and, and sort of go you know go off the grid and and dad's like oh you know like it's too expensive and and, and all the rest and um now their um their electricity bill through uh this last winter in in Europe has been 4 to 5000 Aussie dollars per month. Wow. Um they live in a house from the 16th century but you know it's um so it's well insulated for Swedish Swedish standards and all the rest but you know they still got to keep it warm so that you know water pipes don't burst and all all the all the stuff that you know people are familiar with in 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 the northern hemisphere wow but what's driving that cost spike why is it so expensive is that is that a side that, effect of the war 
That, absolutely, yeah, and oh, and of course, you know, in, in Sweden, uh, you know, I'm I'm a climate optimist. You know, I'm you know I'm a sustainable futurist, um, but at the same time, you know, the green movement in some areas, including in Sweden, has uh, engaged in some anti-innovation by closing down all of our nuclear power plants, for example. You know, that is a type of renewable energy, but of course, all of those have been shut down, meaning that our reliance on Russia has been uh, enormous. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the Swedish government has come come out and said, you know, don't panic, guys. But you know, please, you know, turn off the lights at home, and uh, you know, put up, put on an extra um, sweater through winter. And my parents in the house that they live in now um, have put in pot bellies inside of the open fireplaces oh. that sort of d- distribute a heat uh, better throughout the house. And I'm like, oh, that's you know, that's an innovation. And I'm like, but you're you're, you're burning sequestered carbon to uh, to keep yeah. the house warm, and so all day long, you know, they're you know either chopping down trees or putting trees. Um, you know, through the pot bellies to keep the house warm, that's, and that's you know, a, so the, the climate impact of that is is pretty significant as well. I mean, during uh, Super Storm Storm Sandy, when when I was stuck in uh, Connecticut at the time, we we the only you know the power was off for like uh, you know weeks, and so we were cooking food on on the open fire. And, yeah, um, I'm, I'm I'm not going to judge too hard. Like you know, it's uh, it's 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 super cozy, and it's like one of these traditional human legacies of you know sitting around the fireplace and sharing stories and a glass of yeah, red wine, right? In that. Um, but if everyone if, if everyone starts you know um, burning dung again, uh, we're also doomed. So I agree with Robert that I think there's a you know massive awakening now that we need um, we need more solar, we need more wind. Do you think that's a more renewable energy shift? Or, or, or is that like you know, is it is is it going to happen as a result of the impact of climate change? Well, I think it's I think it's a combination now. I think uh, Europe is definitely realizing how reliant they've been on you know importing stuff from a dictator. Um, so energy independence is going to be something uh, that's going to be a focus. And then the question is, how do we get that energy independence? You know, it's increasingly uh, looking at what natural resources do we have? Do we have lots of wind off the coast of Norway and England, for example? Do we have lots of solar in Sweden? Probably not, but we have other types of energy like, you know. Um, do you think the uh, likelihood of of, uh, of nuclear energy making a comeback might be? Because you keep hearing about people saying, look, it's we have this system, it's efficient, it's much better than the power plants that were well, built. we have clean it's- nuclear now, like thorium reactors and stuff like that, that, you know, we could develop that are much more environmentally friendly than, um, you know, what we, like plutonium reactors and stuff like that. I think in uh, many northern hemisphere countries, like my native country of Sweden, where they're not blessed with a lot of sunlight, nuclear is going to have to be part of the equation. But of course, there's the image problem that they will have to overcome uh, as a result. I mean, luckily, I live in Australia where we're blessed with solar and wind. I mean, to the degree that we could power not just all of Australia as a, as a you know, as a superpower, right. as um, one of our guests, Ross, Dr. Ross Garno calls it, but also export four times the amount of power that we actually need in Australia to power some of the largest economies around the Asia pack as well. So it seems so obvious, right? Yeah. So why hasn't Australia done it so far? Well, I think we've been also uh, blessed with coal and other uh, incumbent legacy interests that have a very strong political voice. So um, I think, again, you know, let's keep digging it out until, you know, until it's no longer profitable. I mean, you, you yeah. and you see the same thing in Norway, right? You see, you know, them moving, they're now the second largest or second greenest economy in the world. Um 
97% of all electricity consumed in uh, in Norway is from renewables. Uh, 65% uh, of all uh, vehicles sold in 2021 were electric. EVs, um, yeah. Te- Tesla has um, you know 16, 17% market market share there. It's in- incredible. But you know what pays for all of this is of course oil and gas yeah. and the uh, the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund. So, but you know that, that's the climate paradox. But, but that's, right? that, I mean, you you could make an argument that Norway at least has invested in their future using those yeah. funds for that, whereas. In the US, all of that profit goes to individuals and corporations and doesn't necessarily go back into the system. Um, you know, yeah. and as Al Gore was saying at Davos the other week, you know, um, every decision on climate legislation in the United States is controlled by the fossil fuel companies. They're intimately involved in the legislation. They will um, be involved in exactly what the wording of those agreements said, and they're fighting tooth and nail all of the time to uh, limit uh, the effect of climate legislation, which which is uh, systemically horrendously bad for human, humans. You yeah. know, 10 million people die every year from air pollution as it is, and that's, that's setting aside the climate change issues. So what's yeah. the renaissance, using your... Uh, uh, your terminology from your podcast. What what is the renaissance that get gets humans to change this trajectory? Well, I think a, a few things. I do feel like there are um, some future signals um, in the shape of the awakening of the conscious capitalism movement. Uh, we've seen, you know, as I alluded to before, the likes of leaders at Unilever, you know, converting, you know, a, an important part of their international business models towards being a certified B Corp. So, you know, achieving at the highest level of ESNG factors. You see the likes of Larry Fink from BlackRock, you know, launching a, a circular economy fund and predicting that, you know, the next thousand unicorns will come from the green, green tech, clean tech, sustainable space. So I do think that there is a recognition now that you can't innovate without being sustainable. I think the other thing is strategic storytelling around this because Robert, you alluded to it before that a lot of this is about science fiction storytelling and mm-hmm. and and even even the idea of the hero's journey uh, comes up for me. Uh, Joseph Campbell's work of you know who who's the who's the dragon we've got to slay in 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 all of this and when it comes to um, you know people picking up the sword and going on an adventure. Uh, on this sort of, you know, Luke Skywalker mission, right? Which, by the way, follows that whole Joseph Campbell's hero's journey narrative. Um, we haven't really had a clear sort of villain up until uh, recent times, but I do think you're calling it out there, uh, Brett, and it's the fossil fuel industry yeah. It's um, that are literally polluting uh, the planet and uh, that are also, of course, uh, trying to delay and delay uh, some of these really, really critical You know, I hear uh, it all the time. You know, the biggest criticism I get when I comment on something like this on social, for example, you have the capitalists jumping in. Well, we've got to do this progressively so it doesn't affect the economy. You know, this is this is the uh, argument. And and but the reality is 50 years ago we had the technology to replace fossil fuels in in large portions of society, right? Um even if it was nuclear, um but certainly in terms of solar and wind and other, you know, hydro, we could have developed these technologies a lot faster. We could have developed storage energy storage technologies faster. We didn't because the fossil fuel industries was, were incentivized to keep that party going because they were making tons of money out of it. 
So how do you change those incentives? I mean, one of the things is from the corporate, uh, um, you know, future futurist side of things, you spend a lot of time advising corporations and, um, you know, in, in the sort of the futurist angle of, of um, that work you do with the corporations, are corporations becoming more conscious of these things or, you know, what's driving their need for, you know, having this sort of future forecasting? Well, I think um, when it comes to sustainability and, and forecasting, what, what you're now seeing is that uh, organizations are waking up to the fact that, you know, shareholders will punish them, talent will avoid them or leave them. And of course, uh, stakeholders will also abandon them as well as consumers uh, and customers will abandon them unless they, uh, they are seen to be doing the right thing. I think what they're also seeing is that, you know, supply chain is now becoming the story that's going to win the digital minds and analog hearts of tomorrow's customers where, you know, the conscious consumer uh, wants to buy from conscious capitalists where I, as a hopefully somewhat conscious consumer, I have no problems buying the next generation of iPhone because I know it comes from a sustainable supply chain. I know it's part of the circular economy, so I can gladly spend my money, not just knowing that I'm getting the latest and greatest technology, but I'm also doing it uh, with a company that's part of a conscious capitalism movement. So we do see, and like what I'm hearing from, you know, boardrooms and executive uh, management meetings, et cetera, is that they're already seeing with a great resignation and great reevaluation that people are leaving organizations because they're going, hey, you're not purpose-driven. Um, this yeah. place doesn't feel feel like an ethical organization to work Here, at. And let me let me offer this perspective though. So there is this challenge that we're facing, uh, which is consumers are jaded. Consumers are cynical. And actually they've been taught to be cynical by the marketing. Uh, and many companies around the world have been quick to co-opt whatever trendy term is the cause du jour and uh, incorporated into their marketing. In fact, they have advisors like you and me who are whispering in their air, telling them that these are the important trends you need to be attention, pay attention to in the future. And those companies are quite smart. They're quick studies, right? They hand the problem to the marketing department. While they don't necessarily change their practices, they stick the right label on the front of the box. Uh, so consumers today are quite cautious about claims to things like organic and fair trade. Uh, we want to believe those things are true, but we've been conditioned by relentless marketing campaigns to be doubtful of all those claims. So there's sort of an uphill battle and we've created this for ourselves. If we really do want to change the narrative and inspire people to change and inspire people to make decisions with their wallets, you know, with their purchases that are gonna to lead to sustainability, you have to have trust. And this is a real serious problem, at least in this country right now, because nobody yeah. knows who they can trust anymore. Uh, social media, to some extent, has eroded trust. Our politicians and the fact that they're bribed and paid off by the fossil fuel industry, for example, uh, that's created a great deal of distrust as well. And it just goes on and on. So we have this uphill battle in front of us. Uh, if we're trying to be future forecasters and good storytellers and inspire people to positive actions, we've got to regain their trust. You know, Anders, there's a role in all of this for the blockchain. And I know people will laugh when they hear this because the blockchain has been casting around for 10 years for a, a problem that it can actually solve. Uh, but it turns out that uh, the trust protocol does work in this context where um, you can, um, there's, a, there's an opportunity to use uh, 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 the blockchain in, uh, with, in connection with barcodes so that consumers can scan the barcodes and find out 
a verifiable uh, identity or a verifiable proof about the provenance of goods, where those goods were manufactured, whether or not they were certified fair trade or certified organic, and they can look up the certification. I know this because I worked with the standards body that created that standard for the barcode. So it's not just myth or theory, it actually works. And what I'm happy to share with you is that major companies, like some of the ones you mentioned earlier, consumer products companies, they're beginning to embrace this labeling system. So you might not see it in a store in Sydney anytime soon, because like all things, it'll take some time to roll out. Um, But one of the firms I talked to uh, that is embracing it, they found that they were being challenged by female shoppers. Women were coming to stores and they were so cynical and so jaded that they didn't believe any of the marketing. And they wanted a way to verify for themselves. And so this ability for people to use the smartphone in their pocket to scan a barcode or a QR code and quickly look up and verify that the facts claims on the front of the package are actually true. This is a powerful idea. Uh, I just want to share that because I know on this on this show, I often play the role of the cynic and the doubter. Um, but if that's not necessarily my nature. I'm just cautious about embracing all these uh, all these fanciful visions unless they're grounded in some kind of well, practical reality. Well, let's go futurist right now, and and Anders, um, you know, let let's talk through the timeframes of when do you see that shift occurring, so that corporations, you know, at what stage is is that sort of community action that we see emerging right now going to be formative, where um, corporations will live and die on their sustainability. For me, uh, twenty thirty is is the big marker. Um, that's what I'm firmly focused on. So I feel like we have the next seven years to get the house in order. Certainly, uh, uh, you know, the science and a lot of scientists agree that these 2050 visions, yes, they're useful, but really we need to take massive action now to prevent some really disastrous climate outcomes. And I think people will be willing to fall on their own swords. What you will see here, yes, we might have a you know short-term you know economic slowdown, whether it's going to be recessionary or not. The future will will, will decide. But I do think that um, there is so much creativity potential within the constraints of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and of course they are firmly focused on 2030. So I think that is that is the time frame um, where we have to get things right. And I, I do see a new generation generation of you know of talent or of leaders of people making some really really uh, momentous uh, big decisions so the next seven years is is what we've got um no, but I, I, do, believe. I, and I think also yeah I think, I think also right. inter, from an intergenerational equity perspective I mean um as I mean I said I talked about Australia a moment ago Australia's got the most to gain in terms of its um, renewable resources, so solar and wind, out of any country in the Such OECD, a perfect economy. But it also, but it also has the most to lose because we are so exposed towards drought, flood, and a bunch of other climate impacts that actually over-index in Australia. And I think Australians have woken up to these bushfires that we have or these floods that we have, um, you know, even at our summer house we've, because of La Nina and climate change rain, uh, you know, we've had landslips and insurance companies are now stopping to insure coal-fired power plants, for example. And of course, when the insurance industries is making, you know, the the running of fossil fuel companies impossible because um, they see that it's a stranded asset, you know, there are things starting to happen. It just needs to happen a lot faster, I believe. Yeah, my Miami Dade 
is going to be completely uninsurable within the next decade if you live in Miami-Dade, you know, in terms of weather effects, flood, hurricane damage, so forth. Um, we've had eight uh, insurers go bankrupt in in Florida in the last uh, eight years. Mm. Right. So, um, yeah, and, you know, and climate the state of impact Louisiana, is Insurance companies are pulling out because they can't, uh, they can no longer take bets against climate change. I was just in Charleston, South Carolina, where they have a seawall. The old city is right on the water and it's right at water level and surrounded by a, a low wall. But the wall does no good because the water comes right over it now. So they've reached a point now where they need to they need to make, make a bigger and taller seawall. And it's, of course, very controversial because it'll end up looking like the Berlin Wall and ruin all the pretty views in that town. Uh, but that strikes me to be uh, a, a global. We need problem, that in New right? York. You know? Yeah, well, look, man, you're living in the city, Brett. You're in Bangkok. You're under sea, sea, sea level, right? It's so even Bangkok yeah. is threatened. It doesn't help that they're putting up all those concrete towers for the SkyTrain there. That's going to push down pressure on the aquifers and sink the city even faster. Um, is there I, one, of my, one of my? I was going to say one of my favorite questions in all of this, and, and you know, it's one that you can use quite meaningfully in in dinner conversations, but equally. Uh, with clients and in, in your own work, um, I found it really empowering myself, is how climate change ready are you? And by that, I mean, how climate change ready is your investment portfolio? How climate right. change ready is the house that you live in? How climate change right. ready is the schooling and the education that you're providing to to your kids you know how climate change ready is um is the energy that you're producing or or consuming i mean and how climate change ready is your business model mm-hmm. um and if we don't uh, equate for that or take that into our calculus well you know we're we're simply you know burrowing our heads in the sand right yeah, and the, yeah. to that extent, you're you're ahead of the curve because you're already off the grid and you're already using renewables in your home and so forth. So you're you're a model for all of us to emulate. I don't want to say I'm a model, but I'm like, and some of these shifts are so easy, right? I mean, you know, literally, you can just, you know, you, if 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 you happen to own your own home, um, you know, you just switch the provider, right? Um, in our studio here, in our podcasting studio, you know, we made those choices as well. You know, the the electricity that we get, the the power that we get, yeah, it's renewable. We can't, we don't own this building, so we can't put solar on, but we can, you know, we can lobby to our uh, landlord, um, in our, you know, in our business that you know they start you know, shifting, shifting and, and generating their own electricity, et cetera. I mean, yeah. we can, we can do small things like, you know, composting at home. Like it's, it's a very small scale uh, solution, but, you know, a family of four that composts all its food and food waste through a year, you know, that is the equivalent of sequestering the amount of carbon that a petrol based car generates in six months. And so, people might as well get, get, get used to it because we're all going to be there sooner or later, right? That's the inevitable future. Okay, I have two questions for you to wrap up here. The, the first one is, do you think we're going to make it to those SDG goals by 2030? What's the likelihood that we will achieve those ambitious goals? And my second question is, give us a sunny scenario. Give us an optimistic, uh, optimistic view for way out in the future, for, for 2050, if you will. Yeah, get wow. sci-fi. Okay. So I think, um, I think there are, um, not everyone will make it, right? 
I think uh, with the sustainable development goals, um, I think they are a great set of criteria that that organizations should embrace as part of their, you know, organizational ikigai, uh, as the Japanese would call it from Okinawa, their, you know, their their raison d'etre, their life purpose. Um, and we're already seeing a bunch of organizations that we work with uh, making them a central and core component of, of their strategy. Uh, trying to go against that, I think, is ludicrous. Is every organization going to get there? Uh, no. Uh, how, you know, I I doubt that a bunch of fossil fuel companies will make that big transition. But others like BHP uh, are now, you know, selling off its stranded assets in the fossil mm-hmm. fuel industry and making some really interesting bet in the bets in the renewable space yeah. as well. Yeah, they are embracing renewables. They see which way the wind is blowing. So to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And I think between countries, it's also going to be interesting to, to note. I think a, a country like Australia, I think, fi- feel finally there's this sort of zeitgeist. And even with the, with the changes in government that we saw in, in 2022, uh, and also a bunch of independent, teal independents who are climate activists winning really, really important seats, we're now seeing a real swing in terms of political will. And okay. So, what's really your bold vision targets. for 2050? Share something science fiction with us. Yeah. I'll- yeah, what are you optimistic? Twenty fifty. Um, I'm. Yeah, I. I. It's hard for me not to be not to be an optimist. Um, but I do think that on the way to twenty fifty, even though we might come out on the other side of of you know a few pretty tricky decades of, you know, yes, we might see climate wars. We might see the fighting for for resources. Some people say that you know beyond all the history and all the rest in Israel Palestine, it's also you know it's a war about resources and same with you know ukraine um it's essentially an oil war it's essentially an oil war another one so i think you know what's the best way to make sure we have energy independence is to you know download the resources wind solar etc that we have available to us but you know with any sort of transformation towards you know a really positive future scenario that's around conscious capitalism um that assists where we have ai assisted you know unleashing of human creativity uh to solve for some of these um issues with amazing technologies and sequestration regenerative farming and all the rest i think uh, you're going to have to also get rid of the old and um that might mean we have even more climate wars and you know redrafting of geostrategic borders and boundaries and forming of new alliances and all the rest because um it's yeah. hard for humanity uh historically to leave behind an old model in sort mm-hmm. of you know spiral dynamics evolutionary theory leaving behind one old without some some massive like, conflict it, on the it's way it's like what niels bohr said about physicists you have to just wait for the previous generation to die off yeah. and maybe that's the real yeah. issue here is we have to wait for all these uh you know uh baby boom generation politicians senators and executives, yeah, we have to wait for them to shuffle off this mortal coil so that the next uh, generation can can clean up the mess that we're leaving behind. Yeah. Boy, that was not yeah. the sunny note I was hoping to end on at all. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to be Pollyannish, but, you know, I do like, you know, I've got two young sons, Aurelian, who's one, and Lucian, who's five and a half, five and a half, very important. Um and, you know, I like to believe that um, we're not going to leave a scorched earth that they can't inherit. Um, and, you know, I was recently working with a with a family business in Mexico called Grupo Caluz, who have, you know, diversified interests. And I love, I love their mantra when it comes to investments um, and innovation, which is, you know, 
is it is it a, an investment or an innovation that's going to leave a world worth inheriting? Yeah, and that is their guiding mantra in everything that they do. That's not just family businesses having those types of intergenerational perspectives. Even the likes of Unilever, they ask themselves the question with any investment or innovation, it's got to tick two boxes. One is, is it good for the business and profitability? And is it also good for society? And if it only gets one tick, they just don't do it. Mm. Um, And that makes strategy pretty easy. And uh, it's an internal check. Is it good for society? Uh, And is it good for profitability? And I think that's where people, planet and profit can coexist. Mm -hmm. And maybe my final note here is like a little Swedish old school moniker of the idea of log om. It's a Swedish word that means just right, essentially. Uh, The old myth was that it was about how the Vikings poured beer and when you sat around, uh, you know, a table of Vikings, um, and somebody poured the mead into the horn, you couldn't drink too much so that it wouldn't go around the whole team. Log on means around the team. You shouldn't be seen to be selfish and drink at all, uh, but you also mustn't drink too little because you wouldn't be seen as uh, not masculine enough. So, just <laughs> finding that right sweet spot between people, planet, and profit. I think is a real sort of, you know, again, creativity catalyst. And a great example, maybe just to finish off there is, you know, imagine being the the person at UPS who a bunch of years ago um, said, let's just stop turning left. I've got a hunch that we're sitting idling in traffic for too long. You know, we're wasting fossil fuel by just, you know, sitting still waiting for oncoming traffic to pass. Uh, Let's just stop turning left. And then they started fitting, you know, their or trucks with the GPS right. and RFID. Yeah. So uh, in Australia, I think don't turn right. Um, so now we're confusing everyone. Um, <laughs> but they they stopped doing this. And as, as a result, you know, they're delivering, you know, hundreds of thousands of more parcels a year. They're uh, burning less fossil fuels as, as a result. And of course, um, you know, their carbon emissions are way lower, ta- you know, taking the equivalent mm. of something like 20,000 passenger cars off the road every year, just because of that one decision to stop turning left. That's a nice That's story good. to end on. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Anders, it's been a great pleasure yeah. chatting with you today on The Futurist. Thanks for joining the show. I certainly enjoyed our conversation. Great to meet you. Yeah, and um, how do people find out more about about you, Anders, and and about your podcast and your books. Uh, we're on we're on the blockchain. Our story is farm <laughs> to table, producer to consumer. Uh, but check out the uh, second Renaissance podcast. I think it's very complimentary, although maybe even more focused on sustainable futures. That's our podcast on Spotify and all the rest. Uh, and uh, you can go to our website, think.com or Anders Sommernilsson. Uh, and that's tell spelled, you how to spell uh, my name. T H I N Q U E dot com, right? Correct. And Great. uh just Google my name, spell it however you wish. Um uh, the algorithm will probably predictively spell it for you and you will find us in the metaverse. Fantastic. Well, and thanks for joining us on The Futurist today. If you've uh, enjoyed this show, if you uh, enjoy the the podcast generally, please make sure you give us a review, shout out, uh, post uh, some episodes on your social feed, whatever it does to help sort of raise awareness. It's all all, uh, positive and helpful. Of course, giving us a five-star rating on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you download the podcast is also helpful. It helps uh, people find the the episodes more easily. 
Um, but the best thing you can do is obviously listen, which you are. So thank you for that. Uh, we, uh, we've had tremendous growth in the podcast and we're really uh, grateful to the, uh, the crowd that follows us and the support that we've got. And, um, you know, having great guests like Anders on, uh, obviously is part of, part of that formula, but, uh, we will be returning next week with another episode of the futurists until then we'll see you in, in the, the future. future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.